is from Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this word, for this text that uh, we are going to look at this morning. We ask that your spirit Uh, be present and work in our hearts so that we understand uh, what it is that you would have us know. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. One of the things sociologists talk about is the difference between new money and old money. These categories are loosely based on whether someone inherited wealth or grew up poor and gained wealth later. But the category is really about how someone understands their wealth. Old money knows how to use money to accomplish goals. Old money understands wealth as a privilege and a responsibility. They invest it to make more money, Uh, they put it into assets that will hold value, and they create foundations to do charitable work that they see as valuable. Old money doesn't spend frivolously, but new money, doesn't use wealth responsibly. New money spends wealth on passing fancies. A great example of this is Elvis Presley. He grew up poor in a two-room house, and when he started making big money, he started spending big money. What am I gonna do with all this money? I'm gonna put green shag carpet on the ceiling and call it the jungle room. When Paul preached his gospel, one reaction that he got was what we might call new grace. Some of his listeners heard that their sins were forgiven and thought, I guess that means there's no reason to stop sinning. What am I going to do with all this grace? I'm going to do exactly what I was doing before, but I'll feel less guilty about it. After all, the threat of punishment is a pretty big motivator to obey the rules. And when that punishment is taken away, what motivation do we have to pursue godliness? Well, Paul keeps trying to explain it. Throughout his letters, Paul tells us that God's actions require us to respond, and to respond in a particular way. That's what we encounter here in Titus 2. Paul is writing to a church who has not connected God's work with their own conduct. And so he restates the gospel, but he does so in a way that forces us to see how God's actions give us particular obligations. Paul starts with the word grace. It's the subject of the whole text. Paul doesn't even mention Jesus' name until verse 13. In verse 11, he just refers to the totality of Jesus as the grace of God. Paul's a very careful writer, and he's being very particular with his words. Instead of talking about Jesus' incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection, he summarizes all in one word, grace, the grace of God. What is Paul getting at here? See, the church in Crete had a problem. 
Well, Crete itself had some problems. It was morally bankrupt. In the first chapter of his letter, Paul quotes a poet from Crete. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That may sound harsh, but it wasn't just Paul cherry-picking a nasty quote from that one poet. Cretans had a reputation in the ancient world. The verb to cretinize had actually come to mean to lie. And the statesman Cicero wrote that Cretans considered highway robbery to be honorable. In short, Cretans didn't even share the morality of the rest of the ancient world. But Paul wasn't concerned that Cretan culture had issues. He was concerned because of what was going on in the church. It seems that some of the immorality happening outside the church was also happening inside the church. And it wasn't just brand new Christians who didn't know better. Some of these immoral people were teachers in the church and were leading the church astray. If you go back and read chapter 1, you'll find Paul condemning these false teachers who are teaching for profit. Paul calls it shameful gain. He also instructs Titus to install elders who are unlike them. One of the qualifications Paul gives is that these elders not be greedy. It might not be immediately clear what Paul is getting at here. After all, our church pays a pastor to preach for us, right? And elsewhere, Paul specifically instructs churches to compensate pastors for their work. So what is going on with these false teachers that Paul is so upset about their finances? Well, Paul's issue seems to be that these people were teaching for a, on a for-profit basis. In other words, if you want to hear the good news about God's salvation, you'd better come up with some cash. So Paul's letter to Titus is filled with urgency. Paul is commanding Titus to rebuke these false teachers and to instruct the Cretan church in how to live as godly people in their society. And this is where Paul emphasizes grace. Because his first lesson for the church on Crete is that we need to live generously because of what God has done Paul's response to the corrupt teaching is simply to make sure that we understand what Jesus' work was actually all about. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus descended from his throne to take on human life in a world full of sin. He lived and died, not because it would add anything to himself or increase his value to the Father, but in order to bring salvation. And he did not choose to bring salvation to the rich, to the powerful, or to the wise. No, he brought salvation to every kind of person. Jews and Greeks, slave and free, men and women, healthy and sick, rich and poor. So when Paul frames Jesus' work in this way, it is in clear contrast to teachers who are selling tickets to hear about Jesus. It's a continuation of what he says about them in Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. The way that they are acting shows that they don't understand Jesus at all. How could someone who knows that Jesus freely offers salvation to all charge money in order to share that message? Paul wants the Cretan church to understand that the way they are living needs to be informed by what Jesus did for us. Because Jesus graciously gave up everything for them, they need to live generously. They need to see that generosity, generosity is intimately tied up in the gospel such that it cannot be separated. Several years ago, I was home for the weekend to celebrate Christmas with my family. 
I was looking forward to our typical holiday traditions with uh, Christmas Eve with my parents and siblings where we grilled steaks and opened presents after the Christmas Eve service. Then up to Grandma's house on Christmas Day to see our cousins. But I hadn't been home long when my mom dropped a bomb on my plans. Some of you know that my family did foster care for a long time, and they'd gotten a call about a little girl who needed a placement. I was not enthusiastic about disrupting our plans, but my mom encouraged me to think about it. And I had only moped for a little while before I realized that the way I wanted to celebrate Christmas was completely the opposite of what Christmas meant. I was seeking comfort for me and mine to celebrate Jesus leaving his father to bring strangers into his family. I professed to celebrate Christmas, but was denying it by my works. The way we live is indicative of what we understand about God. When we are generous with our time, our homes, and our resources, we proclaim that we serve a generous God who freely gives of himself for others. When we welcome in foster children or struggling young people, we proclaim that our God cares about us without regard for social status. When we freely forgive others, we proclaim that God has freely forgiven us. But when we prioritize our own comfort, when we take what we've been given and use it to serve ourselves, we proclaim that we serve a different God, one made in our image. When we are greedy, we deny the Savior who emptied himself of everything for our sakes. So Paul's first point is that we can't live selfish lives without denying Christ. We need to live generously because of what God has done for us. But Paul continues, because he wants us to understand that God is still working. Paul's second point is that we need to live self-controlled lives because of what God is doing in the present age. Like our world today, Crete was full of what Paul calls worldly passions. He identifies some of them in chapter 1. Drunkenness, violence, insubordination, and debauchery. All sorts of desires come from our sinful nature, and it feels very natural to give in to them. Sometimes we even justify this by emphasizing God's work in the past. He chose us and saved us without considering anything that we had done to earn it. Therefore, God must not really care what we do. Tim Keller describes this mindset perfectly. God likes forgiving sin, and I like committing it. Even when we aren't that explicit, it's easy for us to think that God's grace has made obedience irrelevant. And Paul absolutely rejects this. He reminds the Cretan Christians that God's grace didn't just act and be done. He goes on, God's grace is training us. And this word doesn't mean textbook instruction. This is rigorous training. It's hard work and correction. This is two-a-day practices and wind sprints. God's grace is disciplining us to leave these worldly passions behind and to embrace self-control here and now. In chapter 3, Paul makes it clear that he's talking about the Holy Spirit's work of renewal. But verses 11 to 14 are one run-on sentence about everything that God's grace is doing. It was at work in the past, and it is at work now. And we need to live in a way that recognizes that. We need to be self-controlled. Paul brings up self-control three times in Titus 2. It's a fitting contrast to a culture that is driven by fickle and sinful desires. In Galatians 5, we see self-control listed as part of the fruit of the Spirit. 
But one of my favorite understandings of self-control is actually from Proverbs. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. The self-controlled person is able to resist their emotions and desires. If they're angry, they're able to say, no, this anger is inappropriate. If they're hurt, they're able to set aside their hurt and reorient themselves. And even when their emotions are at their strongest, they can choose to put others before themselves. But the person who lacks self-control has no walls, no defenses. They're unable to resist their desires. They're simply overcome by the passion of the moment. If they feel attacked, they lash out. If they're in the grip of sexual desire, they cannot help themselves. Everything becomes about, how do I feel right now? And when everything is about my current feelings, it's not about God's grace and his glory. And those should be the motivating facts in our lives. It's important for us to stop and see how Paul wants us to become self-controlled. Earlier in the chapter, he tells Titus to instruct the church to be self-controlled. But here he explains that God's grace is training us to live self-controlled lives. Some people have tried to take these things apart. Either we need to be self-controlled on our own, or God will make us self-controlled without us doing anything. But this dichotomy is completely foreign to Paul. We need to be self-controlled precisely because God's grace is training us to be self-controlled. And one of the ways that God's grace is training us to be self-controlled is by instructions like this. To make a dichotomy between them is not to realize that the Holy Spirit works through Scripture and through the church to accomplish his goals. When my brother in Christ encourages me to pursue God's will for my life, that is the Holy Spirit sanctifying me. When my wife calls out my bad behavior, God is at work. So, we need to live generously because of God's grace in the past, and we need to be self-controlled because of God's, glory, or God's grace in the present, but Paul also wants us to remember that God's glory will appear in the future. This is how Paul describes us. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We need to have a radical future orientation. In Titus 2, we have one of the clearest descriptions of why God saved us. He didn't save us because, we were, uh, because he's a masochist who just likes to die for others. He didn't save us because we are so worthy and desirable that he just couldn't resist us. He did not die because we were worthy. He died to make us worthy. He saved us because he wanted to make for himself a people, a nation of his own. And that nation of people isn't based on ethnicity or geography or political status. It is based on his sacrifice and his purification. That nation lives for him. Brothers and sisters, we are that nation. We are the church, the people of God. And scripture tells us that Jesus' goal was to make us pure and zealous for good works. Actually, a literal translation is that his purpose was to make a nation that is a zealot for good works. You've probably heard of the zealots. They were Jewish religious fanatics and freedom fighters who rebelled against Rome, sparking a war that killed millions. In fact, Paul was writing this letter either right before or during that war. 
So Paul's readers would have immediately thought of these extremists. As passionate as the zealots were about throwing off Rome's rule, Paul wants us to be about doing good works. So we have to ask, how's that going? This weekend, we're celebrating our political freedoms in our country. And don't get me wrong, it's good to celebrate that we live in a country where we can publicly call ourselves Christians. But are we as passionate about doing good works as about politics? Do we read op-eds about how to serve others? When we get together, do we talk more about the president or about righteous living? Are we zealots for righteousness? Or do we read Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and think, I'm right on track. Why does Paul spend so much time discussing how we should live? We don't earn our salvation by good works. Because just like God's grace appeared in the past, in Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, God's glory is going to appear in the future. And it's going to appear in the same way, by Jesus Christ coming into our world. In Titus 2, Paul wants us to look forward to Christ's second coming and live in a way that makes sense with that reality. For most of us, Jesus' return is not a major factor in how we make decisions. We confess every week that he will come again to judge the living and the dead, but it's often something that will happen in theory. We think of it as something that will take care of itself. Jesus will come back and everything will be perfect, so it won't matter what we've done leading up to his return. But scripture calls us to actually live in a way that prepares for Christ's return. If you've gotten married or been close to someone who has, you probably remember the wedding planning. It's a high-pressure season spent figuring out details, trying to account for everything, and getting ready for the big day. For many of us, the time was counted down in months, weeks, and days, and everything that we were doing was focused around that coming event. We got ready to live together, got a marriage license, picked out the perfect clothes, and arranged the catering. Every conversation we had was, once we're married or after the wedding, thousands and thousands of dollars were making sure everything was just right. And it was all worth it. Our wedding days are among the most significant days in our lives. Everything we've practiced and prepared, all the decisions we've made come together in a few hours of joyful ceremony and change our lives completely. This is the picture that Scripture gives us of Christ's return. All of history is leading to this vision from Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We are that bride. We are approaching our wedding day, and our beloved bridegroom is making all the preparations. He will appear from heaven with great glory and will come to take us as his bride. We will finally have that consummation that we long for and be united to him in a celebration like none other. All of creation is waiting to look towards the back of the church and see the bride looking more beautiful than she ever has before in a radiant dress as she comes forward to meet her husband. But the Cretans were not a bride that had made herself ready. Instead of fine linen, bright and pure, they were wearing a torn t-shirt and ratty jeans. 
because the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And unlike the bride in Revelation, the Cretans were not concerned about righteousness. Instead of preparing for the wedding, they're laying on the couch, binging Cheetos. They're not in the mindset of, once we're married, they're in the mindset of, how can I be most comfortable right now? So Paul reminds them that their big day is coming. It's time to get ready. Take a shower and get dressed. Paul wants them to be as concerned with good deeds as a bride is concerned with her wedding dress, as passionate about righteousness as the zealots are about political independence. Brothers and sisters, Christ did not die so that we could live in the sins of our culture. He did not rise just so that we could feel better about our sins. He gave himself to make us pure, to free us from our slavery to sin, so that we could present ourselves to God as a beautiful bride, clothed in righteousness. And he is going to appear in glory, either finding us clothed in a beautiful wedding dress of pure linen, or in street clothes, stained with coffee and ketchup, with selfishness and greed. We need to orient our lives towards Christ's return, not just professing belief in it, but preparing for it. Will we greet our bridegroom as a pure people, anxiously awaiting him in our wedding dress? Will that dress tell the story of generosity, of self-control, and of purity? Or can't we be bothered to prepare ourselves for our wedding day? Are we too busy living our, the life that our culture expects of us? Will our wedding dress tell the story of apathy, greed, and indulgence? In Titus 2, Paul calls us to live differently from our culture because of God's work. He calls us to live generously in light of Christ's generosity towards us. He calls us to live self-controlled lives because of the work that God is continuing to do in us. And he calls us to live pure and righteous lives because Christ is returning to claim us as his people, the fulfillment of everything he has done. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, everything that you have done for us is, is too much to count. We can and should spend an enormous amount of time talking about it. But please don't let us stop there. Help us to prepare for the day when you will return, when we will meet you as a radiant bride, Help us to dress in beautiful, beautiful clothes, in righteousness and purity. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.